Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw and support the show for as little as $5 a month and get access to premium content in return and become part of the Theology in the Raw community. Also, my forthcoming book, Embodied Transgender Identities, the Church and What the Bible Has to Say, will be released on February 1st of next year, and it is available for pre-order now if you would like to engage the transgender conversation from a relational, pastoral, theological, scientific perspective, one that values people and also values the text of scripture and is, uh, I would like to think, informed on the greater cultural, scientific, biological uh, gender theory conversation, then I think you would enjoy this book embodied. It took me a long time to write and a long time to research. And uh, I try to c- convey some fairly complex uh, topics in a conversational way that the average person can understand. So again, it's embodied transgender identities, the church and what the Bible has to say. My guest today is Benjamin Boyd. Benjamin is a uh, popular YouTuber. I I would say he's growing in popularity. He doesn't have like 10 million followers like some people do, Um, but he does have a a very engaged audience. Um, I think he actually has like 50 something thousand subscribers to his YouTube channel. And I have been a big fan of Benjamin Boyd for at least maybe a couple years I don't even know how he came across his channel, Um, but he has done extensive interviews with people. um, Well, he's done extensive interviews with people who are voices of authority or voices of, for lack of better terms, experience in the trans conversation. Um, I think he has over a hundred videos where he interviews loads of different people from, um, from trans people, trans men, trans women, people who have transitioned, people who have detransitioned. He has, um, interviews of people who uh, have been, uh, uh, have followed the trans conversation from a journalistic perspective. He interviews psychologists, endocrinologists, um, other medical professionals in the field. And he's just a really, uh, Benjamin is a great interviewer. He asks really, really good, thoughtful questions. He isn't afraid to go to hard places with various conversations. He's also probably most well known for his extensive covering of the evergreen situation. And that's what our podcast is going to focus on. Um, I think evergreen, evergreen state college and the events that happened three years ago there have become a bit of a microcosm for, um, various things going on around the country today. So I wanted him to come and speak about evergreen and the evergreening of um, America. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Benjamin Boyce. friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. Um, I have on the show today uh, one of my favorite podcasters and YouTubers, Benjamin Boyce. Uh, I, I, honestly, Benjamin, I, I'm just, when you, when I reached out and said, hey, would you be on my channel? And you said, yeah, sure. I was so excited. I mean, literally, I, I, I would like to think that um, what I do on this YouTube channel, my podcast is similar to what you do. Uh, I think very, very similar approach. Um, having just good conversations across a range of topics. Um, so anyway, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm super honored, man. Thanks for having me, Preston. 
So excited um, to dive into things with you. Yeah. So I do want to focus on Evergreen, um, both the actual Evergreen story um, and what I want to call the possibility that that story is being manifested in various ways throughout the country today, the so-called evergreening of America. But before we do, why don't you give, just give us a quick background of who you are and how you fell into uh, podcasting, YouTubing, and even maybe mm-hmm. lead into why you got interested in evergreen uh, to begin with. Why I got interested in evergreen. I arrived on the campus in 2013 as somebody who was, I was in my mid thirties and I wanted to get a college education. I had put that off for a long time and was just working different jobs, a lot of preschool. And uh, I worked in preschool quite a bit. And then I worked in, you know, just various different jobs. And while I was doing that to sustain a certain amount of livelihood, I uh, spent a lot of time or my focus was mostly on novel writing and literature. And I really wanted to be a writer. And I was in my mid 30s. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not a writer yet. I had like stacks and stacks of books that I had written, but I just couldn't get them to be satisfactory enough for me to go through the process of getting them published. So I'm like, well, you know what, I need cred, I need to be, you know, studied and and known and and uh, I need to insert myself into the system that I had denied because I hadn't been getting anywhere on my own. So I it turned out to be the case that I was in Olympia, Washington and just down the street from me, well, several roads, but close by was the Evergreen State College and uh, it was very cheap, accessible and when I looked into it, it had a very strong focus on independent learning. And I had been independently generating content uh, for a couple decades by then. So I'm like, okay, well, this seems like a really good fit. There's also uh, the way that the classes were designed reminded me a lot of preschool and the specific fact that there are all these activities that are, uh, let's say, uh, themed. Like, so in preschool, when you're designing your education, you kind of say, okay, well, we have a month of activities, so let's get a theme, you know, like, well, let's go through animals, and then let's go through colors or whatever, right? And then you you assemble a bunch of activities around a theme. At the Evergreen State College, you would take a theme, uh, such as, let's just say, France in the uh, 19th century France, and then you would have a bunch of different teachers talk about that topic, and the student would investigate that topic of France in the 19th century from a variety of different lenses, uh, such as history, philosophy, art, uh, photography, and the language. Um, And that's actually one of the courses that I took, probably the most quintessential evergreen course that I took. It was called Dark Romantics, and that was over the 2013-2014 school year. And in the spring, we went to France. So it was completely immersed. It was an entire year program where we studied one topic from a variety of different levels. And, you know, I I tacked to that uh, my own studies. um, And I kind of developed there over the course of the four and a half years that I was at the Evergreen State College. I designed my own coursework, which I consider to be narrative arts, where I investigated literature um, from the standpoint of consuming it, of criticizing it, and consuming all the criticism around it, and then producing it, and figuring out ways in which it was produced. And while I was there, I was also studying how people learn at the age of you know 20, uh, and so on. Um, But there's something about the Evergreen State College that was beyond the academic environment, it was more of a cultural environment, and that cultural 
cultural environments, very uh, left, uh, very progressive, very incredibly progressive, even known in one of the most progressive states in the union as a very progressive place. Okay. Uh, so it was kind of interesting to be focusing on my stuff, which is rather apolitical, I thought, not knowing that everything is political now. And while I was studying literature, the production and, you know, what stories do for us and do to us and why we are, you know, storied creatures, sure. uh, probably just as much, if not more so as languaged creatures. Um, you know, while I was studying that, watching a lot of these trainings and workshops and the community rally around ideas of anti-racism and anti-oppression and that anti-racism and anti-oppression seep into every aspect of the college. Now, not every aspect, there are teachers that would not really care that much about it, but it was creeping into um, okay. the students' lives and how they, they thought about everything. Okay. And uh, so long story short, we can get to this a little bit, but uh, to, to kind of wrap up my arc, in 2017, the college experienced a major intersectional mm -hmm. meltdown where the students uh, kind of raided the college, took over the campus, roamed around with baseball bats, um, performed struggle sessions. If you don't know that, that's a technical term term relating to uh, subordinates ridiculing a person of authority, and that comes from the cultural, uh, the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Uh, but the wow. students kind of took over campus for about a week, and they live streamed the entire thing. And one of the teachers that they targeted was Brett Weinstein, and Brett Weinstein wasn't going to have it. Um, they accused him of being racist, and he says, I'm not a racist. And uh, he kind of spoke out against that. And then the entire media got a hold of this footage, which the students generated and made a lot of hay about that. And I was watching the internet explode with storytelling about the material. Like people were taking the material that was generated in those protests and they were making stories out of it because it's very compelling footage, mm -hmm. incredibly compelling footage, but they weren't really seeing what was happening under the surface. I had been there. I had watched the professors and the administration put the ideas of revolution mm. into the heads of the students and coddled the students and then defended the students. And I decided um, that, you know, while there was a lot of people talking about this, I knew more than most. So I started to tell the story from my perspective. And I started from the framework of the ideas and, and I started with the intention of focusing not on the students and the protest itself, but focusing on the theory behind it and the ways that the adults were acting. And so that's, I just ended up being on YouTube as soon as I graduated and then I just ran with it and here we are. And just so people know, yeah, you have a, a, a awesome YouTube channel and you've got, how many videos, you've done like eight or 10 videos, dot, like giving a, a real kind of in-depth overview of the whole evergreen story right is that or um uh, i'm embarrassed to say i have uh probably about 150 videos on the evergreen State oh College. my word <laughs> there's a 24 episode documentary that's the assemblage of all the footage um <laughs> that i'm almost done with and then there's about a hundred and some odd uh videos of me just going through um okay working through the the all the material that i generated so i've got a lot more work I... to do okay um <laughs> so yeah. what you what, you were there on that was your last year when all this erupted in may or were yeah. you gone you were there so you you were firsthand. Yeah, yeah. Um, you so gosh, I, it just it, it's a little bit startling that 
when you said students took over the university, like how does that happen? And you said what was driving that though were these ideas, these theories that were that came from the very people that they were protesting against. Is that right? Yeah. The Evergreen State College taught the students that all colleges are inherently racist. And in setting up itself as a explicitly anti-racist, anti-oppressive institution, they were the first target of the students that they taught. So the students, not knowing any better or just taking advantage of the inherent contradictions and instability of this uh, theology or this ideology, uh, targeted the very people who were trying, who were bending over backwards to empower them. Uh, and how did they? How did this faculty take that? Did they push back? Did they receive it? Did they say, "Yes, I am the problem. I am the racist. Yes, I need to be flagellated or whatever." I mean, how? Well, the guy at the very top, uh, George Bridges, who came on the scene in 2015 and basically aimed the institution in this direction explicitly. He said it. His first remarks to the college was that the civil rights have come and gone and, you know, or the civil rights movement has done a lot of work, but racism is still embedded in the fabric of our of our country and of our world, and we need to excise it. And so what we're going to do is teach you and teach us and, and encounter these difficult conversations uh, so we can overthrow this uh, this 400 years of tragedy, right? Yeah. Um, so George Bridges, when uh, being the president of the college, uh, he was the basically the second person that they targeted. They targeted Brett Weinstein chronologically. They targeted him first, and then they went on to get George Bridges. They went directly to the top after Brett Weinstein and then kind of performed a bunch of struggle sessions, and he obeyed them as much as possible, um, You know, yeah. catered to them and, and, uh, and accepted all their criticism and said, yes, I'm a racist. Yes, I'm a white supremacist. Uh, he's on footage saying that he's a white supremacist um, or on film. And uh, and then once he fell, then the entire institution had to bow down de facto. Like it was just yeah. like once the head of the the, the figurehead, yeah. the, the authority in the room bowed down to this, the entire structure of the college uh, followed suit. Though there were di- dissidents, most people fell in line or just yeah. closed their mouths and watched it happen. Now, when you say racist and white supremacist, I'm assuming that they were, when he says, I am a white supremacist, it would be more along the lines of, say, Robin DiAngelo, third wave racism, where anybody who is white is complicit in a system of white supremacy. Therefore, they are a white supremacist. Um, yeah. They don't think like Confederate flag, pickup truck, white hood. That's not, that's maybe the classic definition of a, a white supremacist. Like when I hear white supremacist, I think somebody who yeah. is alt-right, KKK, or sympathetic with that. But that term yeah. white supremacist has been used to cover anybody, right? Who's who's white, who's just white, right? I mean, it's, Basically white and disobedient or questioning. Um, You can avoid your racism as a white person within this ideology by completely owning it and saying, I am a racist. So if you agree, you're a lesser racist, but every white person is racist. Uh, But there's good racists and bad racists. What was the evidence? So why did they target Brett Weinstein? 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 Weinstein. 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 It's kind of important to differentiate him from the other uh, (laughs) big name Weinstein. Um, what would they say, um, was the reason why he needed to be, why, why was he so targeted? What did he do that put a target on his back? 
Uh, so there's there's that's a complex question. So in my telling of the Evergreen story, I tell it from a multiple uh, points of view, but I I'm not perfect and and I do um, have biases. Um, but I've tried to be as complex as possible, even though I definitely am against this stuff. So I am hobbled in that respect. Um, but there are different takes on why they targeted Brett Weinstein or why Brett Weinstein was problematic. I can point to uh, three different incidents that kind of put him in their sights. The first incident is when he stood up against his colleagues um, a year to the day prior to him being protested by the students. So on May 23, 2016, they, uh, the, faculty of Evergreen the you know as a body and Evergreen traditionally had a lot of faculty freedom the faculty had a lot of power in the institution and uh, funnily enough George Bridges used all this racism stuff to buckle down that and revert to a top down he's more powerful than everybody else so he really betrayed the institution on a number of different levels but the faculty wanted to implement in their self-evaluations uh, a specific cat uh, section on your anti-racist work that you've been doing. So Evergreen has a particular model of uh, what it views as education. And instead of having grades, they have evaluations. And those evaluations are narrative. If you're in a more scientific uh, pursuit, there is quantifiable data in that. But it really is a lot of qualitative data with regards to your development as a student and as a teacher. So every year, the professors will do their own self-evaluation about, you know, where they are, what they're teaching, what they're learning, how they're growing, right? And so the faculty wanted to put specifically into this self-evaluation, how am I doing with anti-racist work? And Brett Weinstein had a problem with that to kind of truncate what I think he was trying to say is that once this becomes a part of the, you know, self-evaluation, it can be used for promotion and for hiring, which can be used to weed out ideological dissidents. Mm. Or if one says that, oh, I thought I was racist at one point, and then I learned that I was racist and I changed, implicitly the person who wrote that in their evaluation, which is now a state document, was saying that I was a racist, right? So now you're having, you're documenting your own racism uh, if you mess up. So it, it was pretty problematic, and he stood against that. And that, from his point of view, that put him on the map. But the college went further than that and developed a council on equity. And this equity council went through, gathered a bunch of data, and then told a story about the data about certain races or certain intersections of identities actually, uh, you know, being very low in the outcomes. And they wanted to solve these outcome gaps. Mm -hmm. What they left out of the data was that actually white men, poor white men were doing worse than pretty much anybody else and uh, native men too. But that didn't suit to their narrative. So they pushed it around. So wow. this equity council overstepped. They were just supposed to kind of give an inventory and some suggestions. And they, you know, made suggestions about them being involved in hiring and in firing and like really overstepped their bounds. And Brett Weinstein, about a week after the election of Donald Trump to office, uh, or, you know, the, the election itself, the Equity Council put on an event, which is a 
a fascinating piece. I was in the room for this event. It's called the Canoe Meeting now, uh, and, and it's a very fascinating study where I was in that room, so I can kind of describe it. It was more along the lines of a religious service than anything I had wow. witnessed outside of an actual church. The tone of everybody was very sanctimonious, and they were talking constantly about belief in the data and agreement and not actually going through what they were actually saying. They didn't actually talk about the actual, you know, data or the actual, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the proposal itself. They talked about how important the proposal was and how much work they put in the proposal. And the language was incredible, really intense. And then they had this, um, this literal Native American religious ceremony where they started beating a drum and they all got into this imaginary canoe and then they marched outside together and then got in a circle and put the students of color in the center and then the white students around the students of color and then the teachers around them and they all sang songs and they summoned, wow. they summoned yeah. something in that meeting. It was incredibly crazy stuff, yeah. but Brett Weinstein and a couple other faculty attacked the actual data. Well, you don't have to use the word attack, but they yeah. argued against the data and said, this is this is overboard. What are you guys doing? Where where are you taking us? And furthermore, Brett Weinstein and a couple other faculty laid out arguments about how this stuff won't actually work out in the long run. It's not, actually not empowering. Mm -hmm. um, and that stuff was all performed over the email. And some of those emails from Brett Weinstein got into the student paper, which is decidedly uh, has one direction of the way that they report things. And they kind of uh, showed him to be this evil bad guy, you know, this uh, white professor, he's Jewish, but this white professor, uh, you know, in the game of privilege politic, there's no move against this force that you can do that isn't some form of bigotry, either internalized or, you know, yeah. obviously self-interest, self-motivated stuff. And that self-motivation can only ever go one way in their frame of yeah. uh, viewing things. So Brett Weinstein, um, did and then there was this other event called the Day of Absence. We don't have to get into. Uh, that's the big story, but I think it's actually kind of just the the flashy story. Uh, but he argued against that. So the students had these emails that they thought were racist because Brett Weinstein was challenging the orthodoxy. And when they designed their week of protest. I think that he fit the role of like this explicitly racist teacher that they could show was, you know, a part of a pattern of of oppression that this institution was foisting upon its wards being the students. So Brett, in a sense, was very symbolic, like he stood for the very he 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 was kind of a placeholder. I mean, a symbol of everything yeah. that was, I mean, the target of people's outrage, it seems like, um, regardless of what he, who he he actually was as an individual or what he was actually yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, um, he was he was the, like the lightning rod or the the touchdown for the. Can you? I know yeah. you skipped over it because it was kind of a flashpoint. But for those who don't know, what just really quickly, what was because that that's that is the one piece that I that's the clickbait headline that I saw that they had this yeah. national day of absence. So just explain that just briefly for those who don't know what that was. Okay. There's, there is some nuance to this and the way in which it's reported can really show like the spin on it. And mm -hmm. it's not really easy to spin it in a good light. So I'm going to try to steel man it every year. The college from the seventies, the college put on a day of absence. And then in the eighties, they tacked on a day of presence to this. So it was an event based on a play by Douglas Turner Ward about this town in the Deep South 
where the black individuals in the town decided to absent themselves from the town so that the white folk could really understand how um, how how important to the functioning of this town the black people were. So the black people just took it for granted the black folk and they ex- uh, exempted themselves. And then there was like this awakening of the racial consciousness and then some sort of resolution. I haven't actually watched the play. I probably should get around to doing that at some point. Um, but the college ran with that and had a day of absence where the uh, students of color would, uh, you know, there would be activities off campus uh, for the students of color so-called to get together and to kind of ruminate over their experiences and, you know, find a sense of solidarity with one another. And then they would come back to campus the next day and everybody would have some sort of cultural feast. However, over the course of, you know, the 80s and then the 90s and then the noughties and then, you know, whatever the 2010s are going to be known as that kind of cultural uh, kind of the, the reconciliatory nature of the civil rights movement has succumbed to resentment um, and and a lot of the white fragility and the privilege politic and the stuff that they're promoting actually exacerbates tensions between the races. And if you watch the um, the programming for the day of absence over the years, it becomes more less and less about you know solidarity in a positive sense towards you know different cultures. Mm-hmm. And more about how oppression and privilege and the gaps rule everything and how solidarity with the black community is actually against the white community and how the white community needs to be against the white community itself, but not the white community, this thing called whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So after the election of Donald Trump, the organizers of the event, um, they say that the students proposed this, but I haven't found anything to that respect. But the organizers, what I found, the organizers decided to reverse the day of absence and invite the white uh, faculty and students off campus to participate in you know, events off campus and then have a bunch of events on campus for the students of color. And the way that they actually pushed this, um, Brett, Brett Weinstein had a reaction to that um, because it seemed like the campus was uh, it seemed like they not only reversed the the races, but they were kind of asking white people to go away and they wanted to center the campus on students of color, whereas, you know, Previously, they weren't centering whiteness on the campus. They weren't having a whites only on campus day, right? right. <laughs> they now, but it seemed like they were having a no whites on campus day, and that's the perception of it. Um, but from what I found, a number of different professors took that very seriously and required students to segregate themselves on race and required involvement of white students to go off campus. There were requirements in place to do that. And the language games are really interesting. So the optics optics are really terrible on that. But again, if you look at the programming, the white people off campus had a bunch of guilt guilt-based, we have to you know, extract our evil whiteness from us. And then on campus was a lot of hate against white people or solidarity against the white people and how Asians and Jews are actually white adjacent and they participate in this program too, right? White adjacent. Um, so, yeah. I, I want to come yeah, back to that. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> there's, there, you know, there's, there's white privilege and then it eventually becomes light privilege. If you are of a lighter color, you actually have to 
start being more and more conscious of, of your race uh, because you are associated closer to the whiteness. So Brett Weinstein uh, argued against that and said, I'm going to protest against that. I'm going to show up. You can't. It's, it's fundamentally a different thing for you to ask one race to leave. Uh, it's one thing to voluntarily uh, excuse yourself. It's another thing to, to you know, ask or push people out of a public campus. For, it doesn't seem like that yeah. would help diminish actual racism to ask an entire race um, to not participate. I mean, I it, and again, I, I, I want to be sensitive to the fact that I am white, raised in a majority culture, and I probably have blind spots. So when I hear the race conversation, I, I want to come at it as a learner. I want to understand different experiences. Um, but I just, I've, I don't help me to understand how, how that would, I don't know. I, and, I, and I know white people throw around reverse racism a lot and all this stuff, but I, it, it's hard for me to not, to come to a different conclusion. Like, I just don't see how that would help actual racism it seems like it would exacerbate it am i missing something i mean you were there did 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 that move seem to like help address actual racism in on the campus i might be wrong um from my perspective okay so i don't know if i'm wrong from my perspective from my perspective they started out by claiming that to be colorblind is racist Mm -hmm. and by the end of my time at evergreen nobody could see past or through color at all like no longer were we colorblind. We, all we could see was color. And there were events on campus where I was, you know, um, not harassed. I was put through a struggle session myself um, or I witnessed one up close. I wouldn't deign to submit myself to them. I just kind of watched them perform it on others because I knew that any sort of movement would just give them what they want um, for. I'm not going to be for them. And uh, but to be against them is just to give them more fuel. But by the by the time of my last few weeks on campus, I was so hyper aware of race that I would uh, have like this reaction when I saw somebody, uh, a black person on campus. I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to get I'm going to get yelled at, you know, and I, and I looked at myself I'm like, oh, my God, like I've never been this way. I've never had that instinctual reaction against somebody based on their race. I mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, like it's just in the air. And when I first started doing my evergreen videos, I was very apologetic because I was very hyper aware of my mm-hmm. white male, et cetera, et cetera, isms. Sure. And, uh, and I, I was apologizing and, and tiptoeing around it. Now I don't really hmm. care so much. Um, even though people that discount me because of my identity, I play the identity politic game and you can see that on my channel, but it's not about my identity that I'm playing. I'm playing with the identities that are so that are supposedly um, the oppressed identities. And I, I empower those identities to speak about their experiences. I don't really care about my white maleness. I play around with my masculinity quite a bit because it's fun. But um, my whiteness is just like something that I deal with when I'm trying to tune my camera. It's not really something that I play with, though. I understand that it's something that um, because I'm in the white majority culture, I don't need to. I understand all that stuff, but it doesn't really matter to me because it doesn't go anywhere. I don't really see where privilege goes, but I'll play the game because that's what we have to play now. Interesting. Um, You made a comment about why the white community versus whiteness can you just yeah. briefly unpack why, like, what's the difference there? Like, when people make that distinction between actual white people or the white community and whiteness, like, what? Yeah. Aren't they two in the same? That's or? really interesting. So I'm going to, if anybody, uh, I'm not, 
I find the definition of whiteness very and. Uh, unsatisfying. So I'm not able to really steel man those ideas because I, I saw that work at Evergreen and I've done several videos showing that this is taught at other universities where these teachers will really talk about whiteness. And when they try to define whiteness, what they're basically defining is really racist stuff. It's ascribing to white people the ability to be rational, to work hard, to be individuals. It gets really racist really quick. Uh, there was a um, one section of the Smithsonian that is concerned with African American history. They published these, you know, these resources on anti-racism, and one, and this is very recently, within the last few months. Um, and uh, one of their brochures was, "What is whiteness?" And they, they went through this whole list of, of behavioral patterns that are supposedly whiteness, like scientific objectivity and like taking responsibility for yourself. And it's like if. Oh, my gosh. OK. Like it, and, and I did a video on this where I read that in a proud tone. And it's it's indistinguishable from white supremacist talk. If you if you read it as something that you're proud of. And you say, look at the white people. They're so strong and they, they really care about like health, you know, and like, well, what wait, who's 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 promulgating this stuff? So when you get into the so there's that level, which is really obviously racist, but there's also like kind of a subtle level where they're pr basically making a Marxist argument that any sort of normative behavior creates a margin and any sort of mm. dominant culture relies, and I, I have a problem with this, but this is the framework, any sort of dominant culture relies on dominating something that's oppressed, right? So what it, it, it's this kind of um, a conflict theory where every where power is, it's always a zero-sum game where you can't have anything without taking it from somebody else. You can't be uh, like just male and female. The fact that there's male and female means that there's going to be a dominant and submissive, right? So the man is, of course, going to be the dominant one. So what you have to do is to destabilize and deconstruct that, you know, that power hierarchy to put the woman on top, to raise up the, the woman, to raise up the female. Um, the race discussion is a little different from the gender discussion. Um, but within the context of what it is to be white, I have one professor saying, well, you know, meatloaf and ketchup, that's whiteness, right? Like it's this bland flavor. That's whiteness. It's just like something that you just always have. It's always there that you take for granted. It's just in the soup, right? And then Robin D'Angelo will say that that whiteness is constantly being blind to all these other identities that it's suppressing and leaving out. If you're black, you're left out of that white conversation unless you assimilate yourself into this whiteness. I think it's just basic human social behavior that if you have a conglomerate of millions of people there will be a way in which they interact with one another that will become the standard, right? Mm -hmm. Grammar is just a standard. Yeah, it's arbitrary in a lot of its aspects, but it is the rules by which we just marginal, we marginate, right? Like margarine, we margarinize discourse so that everybody kind of like just takes it for granted so that we can do something with discourse, right? Yeah. Like get things done, like get hired, go up in a community. But they're trying to destabilize everything normative. Mm -hmm. And then you get into queer theory where queer theory is never it, as soon as a queer theory becomes normal mm -hmm. it has to be queered even further so it's very mm -hmm. a dismantling um attitude going on underneath this it's a very anti and 
my basic problem with it is that it's anti-creative. Ultimately, it's mm. it's anti-creative. It doesn't allow you to actually create anything of, of high standards of beauty because you have to constantly tear everything down to the lowest common denominator. Is it is it too simplistic to say that this is straight out of classic Marxism or neo-Marxism? I've heard, at least in my evangelical circles, mm. on the more, I guess, intellectually lazy end, we tend to take a quick soundbite, a slur and slap it on, you know, so I keep yeah. hearing, you know, oh, this is Marxist, you know, I'm like, I don't know, have you ever read Karl Marx, you know, but yeah. from the little I, I know about classic Marxism in, in terms of power and the oppressed, if you're in the dominant, if you're wealthy, if you're in position of power, then you got there exactly what you said, the zero sum game, you got there because you oppressed somebody. And if you're in the minority, yeah. whether it's it's a gender, ethnic, financial, socioeconomic minority, you are, in a sense, it's almost like you're ascribed a higher intrinsic morality. And if you're in a position mm -hmm. of power, of wealth, part of the dominant culture, it's almost like you have an intrinsic immorality. Um, I, and we, we've seen many regimes, countries, um, go down that route. And it has mm -hmm. always, I think, I'm not a historian, um, at least well, I'm an ancient historian, not a modern historian. Um, yeah. It has, I think, always, at least almost always led to the death of millions of people because once there's a regime change where does it end there's always going to be there's never going to yeah. be perfectly equal outcomes because we're humans <laughs> i don't know i mean it's, yeah there's a beautiful creational diversity within humanity that it will never there will never be that kind of perfect perceived equality of outcomes that doesn't mean yeah. there's an inequity built into the system from my vantage point um anyway my original question i'm going off <laughs> No, is this because I mean, yeah, you seem to be very well read and, and educated and kind of the source and the ideas behind this. Is this classic Marxism? Is it neo-Marxism? And why does that matter? Um, I, I see. I, I don't you point out the uh, the inelasticity or just the the limit of a label. So I always whenever I bring this up, I always say this, that, or the other thing, yeah. like whatever it is we're talking about, because as soon as we ascribe it a label, yeah. just like the ID, IDW, actually, this is a great um, example in relief. Uh, once you ascribe something, a label, it's, uh, it, it, it is inherently uh, flawed yeah. by that label and by the people who use that label as a slur yeah. or as a slogan, right? So if you bring the discourse down to that level, then yeah, you're just participating in a lower level of discourse. I don't know how far you can run with that stuff. Yeah. It's really good for tribal stuff and for the talking stuff. But like, what are we actually talking about right. then? Like that my, my way is righter than your way or your way is faulty because it's neo-Marxist. I, I don't yeah. care. Like what are the psychological impacts of victim victim mentality right like I, I would rather talk about the the behavioral patterns rather than the yeah. theological like talk about a specific uh, strand a specific idea movement rather yeah. than the overarching umbrella label that it may or may not kind of resonate with well yeah i mean i understand it, this is this is something that i wrestle with all the time and i'm not decided on what to do like do i enter into the tribe or do i not enter into the tribe or do i create a pseudo tribe of multi-tribes right do i say that i'm yeah. politically homeless and i'm in shanty town of, of free discourse you know like what do i do <laughs> and then all of a sudden i'm the centrist and then as soon as i'm a centrist then i'm anti-woke yeah. and then i have a bunch of anti-centrists that i watch and i watch it on twitter i watch this discourse yeah. on twitter and th there's a lot of low level 
not really juicy content there, right? So I'm a storyteller. I build my stories out of character and event, not necessarily the ideology. Okay. The ideology, I do critique, and and the transgender topic was it's very fruitful and encapsulating a lot of the dynamics in something that's very contained within mm -hmm. this really interesting influx of women and trans women and all that stuff. That's a really good. It's small enough that you can get your head around it. The race conversation is a little too big for yeah. us to get our heads around so yeah. that's where you know let's go back to evergreen so what what i guess yeah. my question i have I've, been, I've got many questions but what, the students took over the campus what were they yeah. for what like what did they want to accomplish was it just a shame session did they want to fire professors did they want no white professors mm. did they want i don't know uh, more college tuition i don't know what were they what were they trying to get uh they wanted justice for what? Like who, what, um, or is that hard to say? Well, okay. So if, if you are, um, if everybody's an identity group and there's the dominant identity that has the privilege, right? Uh -huh. Which is what they were taught. They were taught that everybody has a identity and, and that identity bequeaths you unearned advantage in okay. life. Yeah. Right. Um, so, okay, well, how do you solve that? Well, okay. What we did is everybody admits to their privilege and everybody finds something that they're privileged about, right? Even uh, unless you are completely marginalized and there's one character who has the perfect uh, quintecta of marginalization, who's one of the biggest tyrants on campus. It's, it's amazing, actually. This guy's a complete performance artist, but he's black, disabled, and trans, Right. And he's like a total ringleader and he's going around terrorizing people. And now he's terrorizing the Olympia Council. It's he's a brilliant person. I was in class with that person. But um, uh -huh. what, what I saw take effect. So at the beginning of the 2016, 2017 school year, which would end in protest, the the. Freshman orientation was um, the collapse of preventing the collapse of civil discourse. Mm -hmm. right? And actually, at the end of the year, there was a complete collapse of civil discourse. Um, and in this session, what they did was that everybody they had a panel of professors, administrators, and a couple students, and everybody up there like confessed to their privilege. Oh, I'm a white cis man. Oh, I'm a white cis female. Oh, I'm trans, but I you know have an able body, right? Um, everybody confessed to their privilege. Well, what do you do with that information? What ended up happening in practice was that if you're a white male with other vectors that go along the privileged path or the dominant path, you would have to put yourself in the back of the bus, or you were asked to step back in the back of the bus. You were you were relegated because we're we're going to end racism, what we're going to do is we're going to assign all this unearned advantage and then we're going to reverse the hierarchy. So what they were basically doing was working out on a psychosocial level this theology. They were bringing it to the, to the culmination of a of a morality play. So it was very theatrical. The, the events themselves are incredibly theatrical and they really collapse under scrutiny if you're like, well, what do they actually want? Well, they want the fulfillment of what they were promised, which was the that the that the oppressed will ascend into the status of the one in power. But they're only they were only ever taught that to be in power was to oppress. They were never taught what you do with power. Why do you want power? Well, I'm going to take power away from you so I can put you down. So I'm more powerful. They weren't taught that actually you need to know how to master power. If you want power, okay, you can have power, whatever you want. Well, what do you do with that power? 
oppress other people. They were never taught about skill, about merit. So they had this big culmination. They issued a list of demands that's like 120 points long. Okay. Uh, they wanted a lot of um, you know reparations, basically, based on identity. They wanted special rooms and housing for special identity groups. They wanted the the prosecution of certain people who didn't live up to the ideals of being anti-racist enough. So it was not enough to be not racist, and it's not enough to even fight racism. You have to be specifically anti-racist and ascribe to every different dictate that the people who are marginalized pronounce is the correct path. You need to constantly uh, adhere to this ideology, or you are a heretic, right? So Brett Weinstein, incredibly progressive fellow, incredibly progressive fellow, Bernie voter, etc. Um, more progressive than I am, certainly. Um, he was targeted too, because he didn't go along with the path. He, he wanted the end of racism, but he critiqued their path because he knew that it would result in something that the opposite of racism. Mm -hmm. Ergo, he's racist. To be anti-anti-racist is to be racist. Mm -hmm. And that, that when you say anti-racist, that, that is a specific kind of... Yeah. I, I put I, that word in quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's helpful for people that haven't heard that term because um, there's various approaches to addressing and combating racism. The somewhat recent, I, I call it third wave, and I, I know that's probably not even the best phrase, but like this, it's a more recent approach to addressing racism. You can be against anti racism in the quotes and yet still be very much against racism. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Is that just, yeah. Because um, some yeah. people are saying, well, wait a minute, isn't that a good thing to be anti-racist? But you're using a, a real specific way to describe one particular approach to addressing There's a, There's a movement about that that's uh, sold as the end of racism and oppression, and it's called anti-racism or anti-oppression. And ideologically, if you look into it, it's actually incredibly racist mm -hmm. because it devolves everybody into their race, or it's incredibly oppressive because it... Uh, presses anybody with perceived privilege. So right. it's the absolute opposite. I watched that. I was I was submitted to the whole thing. Yeah. It's absolutely vile and disgusting. It's absolutely vile and disgusting. And it, it denigrates the human spirit. It completely destroys human authenticity and the ability for people to actually find community across any sort of difference because it collapses everybody into this very narrow, very narrow ideological lens. And it, it, it kind of destroys individuality too, right? I mean, it's it, anti-humanist. It completely destroys. All you are is the signature of your, of your race and your identity. And they even in the language, they call themselves bodies, right? They, they strip the agency away from everybody. Wow. We're all just like vectors of this historical game of pool and like the chips just need to fall in a certain direction yeah. now. Right. So, so that, um, that was 2017 yeah. mid year. It's now 2020. Yeah. Did, yeah, um, let's let's go to the evergreening of America. That's a provocative phrase in a sense. And I don't it, it should be maybe a question mark because I, I, I don't want to suggest that that is definitively happening so let me frame it as a question is it happening yeah. like what you saw firsthand front row seat to evergreen do you mm -hmm. see that being manifested in various parts of the country today and and to be specific you know some of the protests and especially i'm thinking like portland and seattle and um other places um and mm -hmm. even in just a rhetoric i see online and just in the media and everything do you see do you see an evergreening of America, for to put it generally? 
There was an episode that I did, an interview with Brett Weinstein that I had on my channel in, uh, you know, a few weeks into the COVID lockdown. I can't remember when it was, what exact date, but it was two weeks before the George, George Floyd um, footage surfaced, um, where we talked about Evergreen um, three years later. It was three years to the day. So it was May 23rd when, when we had that. Um, it was three years to the day. So um, And then, like, the next week or the week after that, the George Floyd um, hmm. Uh, footage and then protests and then whatever's happening now um, happen. And we were kind of nonchalant about Evergreen. Like, well, what did we learn? Like, it, what was this BLM thing? Like, <laughs> I have to get them back on because, like, things turned out to be, like, we were kind of untimely with that episode and certain events. But we were kind of unpacking. Like, what does it really mean? What does this stuff really mean? Why is it valuable? What What were the lessons, sociological lessons, anthropological lessons, psychological lessons that we can derive from this stuff? Because Evergreen College, 4,000 people in the middle of the woods, very, very contained. And the, a lot of the footage is it's just a perfect study because it was so encapsulated within what happened, right? Um, so how do you extract that and make it you know, meaningful uh, to people? Or if you want to call me a grifter, how do you turn that into a career, right? Um, and then the George Floyd thing happened. And uh, I saw um, behaviors that were completely um, rhyming with the behaviors that happened at Evergreen. Uh, there was a lot of religious activity going on where people were bowing to people and washing the feet of the people of certain races and praying to the different races and stuff. There was a lot of crazy stuff bowing down to the races, the people in the, the leadership collapsing under the weight of 400 years of oppression. And of course, mm -hmm. I'm white supremacist. Yeah. Okay. So on, on a level of analysis that shows different municipalities succumbing to anti-racist dogma, then you have the same trajectory as the uh, president of the Evergreen State College. There's a lot of um, similarities with the protests, right? And how the, the protests are righteous, but then they become violent and completely unexcusable. And then the liberal media or the liberal leadership completely ignores that mm -hmm. and blames it on Trump, right? It blames it on the far right, right? It shifts the blame away from, mm -hmm. you know, the democratic cities are the ones that are burning. But of course, it's Trump's fault. Of course, it's, uh, it's mm -hmm. the federal government because the states aren't handling or the city isn't handling right. So there's a lot of that excusing and inability to actually look at maybe there are certain policies that are drafted to be general and drafted to help disparities that actually cause more problems. Or maybe there's a certain form of tolerance that actually leads to extreme intolerance. Maybe there's a connection between um, liberal ideas taken to the extreme that, that rip themselves away from the center, even hate the center, leave themselves completely divorced from reality, and then spin off into extremism. Um, and then furthermore, the last thing, the most important thing for me is how are all the institutions of authority in regards to media and culture mm -hmm. now forwarding a certain agen agenda? Now, Netflix, like Black Stories, Amazon, Black Stories, right? Nike, uh, all mm -hmm. these all these different very, very powerful institutions are now pushing down all this training, right? So if you look at the Evergreen State College story, the protesters got their UUs out or their yahas out or whatever that phrase is. But then the administration used all that energy to bait and switch the faculty to diminish freedom and to implement a police state 
of you know controlling discourse, controlling communication, and then allowing it to be very easy to be prosecuted for thinking or saying the wrong thing. So right. what ends up happening, which is what I'm concerned with, and there is evidence that this is happening, is that there's this HR uh, department kind of push, or these diversity heads are coming into prominence within all these different organizations, and the function of the diversity and the anti-racism training is to pad the, the, the elites from the subordinates, right? So it actually pits the subordinates against themselves and causes all this policing to happen among that level, right? And then it causes the elites to basically uh, get away with it because they, they're, well, we did their training and we're just going to shuffle around the color of our staff or whatever, you know, but it falls in line with actually empowering the elites, um, this wow. anti-racist stuff. So, Wow, golly. <laughs> so, yeah, so we just passed three years on the anniversary. So what, where, what's happened with Evergreen since 2017 when all that went down? Um, has okay. it been flourishing as a school? Did the students – like, yeah, what's the last three years since the stu- then? The students hated, uh, hated the administration. Um, the students got what they want except for the firing of uh, different people. But the yeah. administration and the people who were targeted worked something out so that they would go away. Um, so Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Hying, they left. And uh, one of the main instigators of the protests from the faculty level, Naima Lowe, she left. And then various other people that were targeted left. Um, but the 2017-2018 school year starts with a, you know, a community uh, – this community event, um, they call it a reconvocation, where they were in and this event for healing of the community, right? And what they did was they put all the protesters up on the stage. The protesters rewrote history, like just lied about the entire chain of events that I had well documented. Um, and then they just like sung about how oppressed they were, right? How oppressed we are because the alt-right and nobody understands us. And, and it begins with that. And then at the end of the 2018 school year, they have uh, this radical uh, student, this radical protester student get up there and have all of the white people, all of the disabled people and the people of color stand up and everybody claps for them. And then all the white people stand up and then you need to do better. Your job as a white person is to forward and put yourself behind everybody else. So, it, and, and then they talk about how they hate the Bridges administration. So the Bridges administration, they didn't win except for the fact that they got more power. The faculty loses the uh, because they lose a lot of power. The project of education bottoms out because now everybody is so obsessed with identity. And I have interviews to this a case. So many people are obsessed with identity and with being on the right side of history or not being on the wrong side of the people who are in power that people just can't talk. You can't really talk about ideas and stuff. Perceptually, um, Washington state is 70% white and it's a state college and it's very obvious that they hate white people. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'll, I'll, uh, they have, uh, they have trainings, right? They have, so they implemented an office of equity, right? And then they have these support groups and there's a support group for women of color to come together and to support each other. There's a support group for men of color to come together and support each other. And then there's a anti-support group for white people to learn how their white 
guilt needs to be purged from them and how do they need to overcome their whiteness, right? So they implement these programs that slander the majority, right? Uh, because the majority being the majority is ipso facto wrong. Why would you go to a college to learn to berate yourself based on race? Even if you are and want to become a radical social justice warrior, it turns out to be the case that every major college will teach you that. Mm -hmm. Evergreen State College, their track record is, yeah, they produced a bunch of radicals, but the radicals made fools of themselves, absolute fools of themselves that I don't think any sincere social justice warrior wants to be aligned with the kind of social justice warriorship that you learn at the Evergreen State College. Mm -hmm. So they lost that market. And long story short, their enrollment has tanked. Uh, they've mm -hmm. gone from... They've gone from 4,000 students, 4,000 plus, to um, I th they're going to be at 2,000-something. So they're they're about half now. Their enrollment mm -hmm. is about half. And it will go down even further as they keep on graduating the bigger classes. Do you know what's happened to the white population, if I could even ask that, at Evergreen? I mean, um, are white people still eager to come to this school or um... – uh, I, I don't know. That that's a, I I don't know. Uh, the thing is, is that Olympia and Washington are very white, right? Um, you have uh, you have Portland, which is incredibly white, and you have Seattle, which is more mixed race. Um, so there's more uh, you know ethnic or racial diversity in Seattle. There's not a lot of diversity in Olympia, and for whatever reason, the college, the administration wants it to make it explicitly cater to. Um, certain races and stuff. Um, but the, but even the races that they catered to, let's say the black um, radical um, that they catered to in these events hates them and gives them bad reviews. So this place is totally racist. Don't ever go there. So they lost the market that they want, oh, right? Wow. So they're really struggling um, and they still want diversity and inclusion and equity to be First and foremost, but I don't think I think they kind of lost the plot and they don't really understand that they kind of made fools of themselves. And my biggest criticism, my biggest criticism isn't that they did anything that they did wrong. Like I go through and I'll show you how they completely screwed the pooch. But a year after the protests, the George Bridges administration releases an independent review of the protests, right, by an it, by independent researchers that are all I did the research. They're all been friends with George Bridges for 20 years. So they're all friends of George Bridges. They give him a glowing review that he did everything right. And that unfortunately, Brett Weinstein, uh, he did everything wrong because he went on Fox News, right? Or he did something wrong. Or Charlottesville happened. Three three months later, Charlottesville happened. So of course, we live in a white supremacist uh, country because three months later, across the country, a crazy guy ran over a white girl, right? Or whatever, you know, like, so they, even Joe freaking Biden is still pointing just the other day. He's pointing to Charlottesville, something that happened three years ago, right? Look, look at all these white supremacists and, and Trump is, is totally for the, because they're good people on that side, right? Yeah. While democratic cities are burning, <laughs> they're still pointing to something that they can loosely tie to the alt-right. The, the, what I'm trying to say is that Evergreen is founded on self-evaluation. They ran a social justice experiment, mm -hmm. and they proved themselves incapable of actually assessing where they went wrong and if their mm -hmm. ideas were wrong. They are incapable 
of admitting where they went wrong or that they went wrong, which as an education institution, you do not want to go and learn how to self-evaluate from people who can't do anything but lie about themselves. Right. Unless you want to learn how to lie, but they're not even that good liars. If you want to learn how to lie, go somewhere else because they're not even that good at what yeah. they are actually teaching you to do. Hang out with some politicians and you become a good liar. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, just, you, yeah. you mentioned the word diversity, and yet I always push back on that because my question is, is there healthy ideological diversity there? Um, and the question, the, I mean, I'll, the answer is absolutely not, right? I mean, there's... It's difficult. It's, I mean... To say that would be disingenuous because, okay. of course, there's ideological diversity, but there is a party line and it's policed. There's an official party line, and that is what's front and center, and anything that doesn't jive with that is is relegated and is marginalized. Okay. So, yeah, they actively marginalize yeah. those who are not within their dominant culture, right? They have total woke fragility, right? They, yeah. can't, uh, they can't admit anything wrong with their ideology, and so they suppress it and put it on yeah. somebody else's head. I mean, what would it be like – and we don't need to keep – we can move on, but I'm just curious, like to be a, say a white straight male who is right of center politically, um, would they be accepted? Would their ideas be entertained, listened to there? Or, I mean, would that be a, and I'm not even, well, I, I wouldn't even consider myself in that. I mean, it's not like I'm describing myself yeah. at all. I, I yeah. didn't and wouldn't vote for Trump. I'm nonpartisan, you know? Um, so I'm not even thinking like personally, but just somebody, mm-hmm who would be of that way of thinking. Um, mm. Mm. You're saying it actually would, they, they might actually have, have a seat at the table or at least have, they wouldn't be um, uh, looked down upon. I went ideas. there. So I haven't been there in three years. Okay. Right? So maybe it's changed. Uh, the classes are really small. Um, the climate across the nation on campuses is very, Suppressive. There's mm-hmm. just data after data, anecdotal data after anecdotal data yeah. that being a white straight male on college campuses is something that you have to be very careful with, especially in the humanities. If you want to do science, you keep your head down, you just plow through it, you'll be fine. No one cares. If you want to be in the humanities, you have to put everybody else first and accept the fact that you're going to be, you know, kind of battered, you know, so, like the le- ha, ha, yeah. ha, white male. Ha, well, ha, ha. So that's interesting. Is, that was my next question is, do you see right. um, shades of what happened at Evergreen happening on other college campuses? It sounds like you've done a bit of work yeah. or at least study on that. Um, so so I, I – the whole idea of like what white privilege, which I, I'm really thinking through. And I, I, I and my audience has heard me kind of think out loud through that. Um, I – I like to listen long and hard before I make up conclusions. I, I am aware that people in who, who occupy a majority context can be blind to certain things. Um, my, my upbringing is a little bit m- messy. I'm like a poor white kid raised in a Hispanic neighborhood. I've traveled a lot. I went to a college. It was 20% white. Um, so I, mm. my, yeah, I've lived overseas, traveled, you know, like I, so it's a little bit mad. I don't have your typical kind of white straight male kind of upbringing or whatever. Um, but this whole idea of white privilege, like I, it doesn't sound so you would based on what you're saying, if, if what you're saying is true, given the state of most um, state colleges or just universities today, it, is there a privilege that comes with being white on college campuses, especially if you're in the humanities, which you're, you're saying it's actually not a privilege. It might be the opposite or. 
Um, you're not allowed to say that. As a white straight male, I'm not allowed to say that uh, white straight males are uh, despised by society because um, it's not the case because, you know, white straight males still get together and like we're doing right now. We still have our little patriarchy corner times. Right. So nobody's going to invade us here now. Um, I think that the concept of privilege is OK at analyzing uh, large group differences and patterns of behavior. I think that the concept of privilege doesn't really suit interpersonal relationships or even, uh, personal growth. I don't know how you, you uh, by ruminating over your privilege, other than there are certain forms of, of Christian meditation to become really grateful, you know, to, yeah. to just like count your blessings. I think that that is a positive thing. If, if it's, if it's about that, if, if it's aimed if these uncomfortable conversations about privilege are aimed towards reconciliation, then they might be good, but they don't have anything that protects them from devolving into condemnation. Um, and I don't see these conversations leading to, uh, to communal, uh, jovial um, uh, effulvence. I don't see privilege being the path towards community building. I don't see that. Um, I haven't seen it, uh, and I see it so easily abused by narcissistic sociopaths to forward their own agenda, where, whereby they gain power by becoming the most oppressed or by lifting up the most oppressed. Like, I think there's a lot of sociopathy that is engaged in um, because it's underlying it is not charity but envy. Right. Hmm. So I just have a problem with it on that level. So you can go and do all you want with white privilege. I mean, I've ruminated on that out loud, but it's not really fruitful. (laughs) Like if you want to create anything right other than social discord or like some sort of communal reckoning with their past. And then all of a sudden we're bowing down to each other and we lose we lose sight of the prize. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way I mean, I've. Yeah, in my journey, and I'm only midway through my journey <laughs> talking oh. about thinking through this. I, you know, um, but I, if, just from my thinking out loud standpoint, well, uh, you you can't be midway because the work never ends, Preston. The work <laughs> never ends. <laughs> that does sound very religious. I mean, that that's a very much a Christian theme. You're never fully sanctified. Mm-hmm. There's always repentance that needs to happen, and it's uh, you 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 made a parallel between some of the stuff going on and certain movements and religion. And, and there are certainly from my vantage, as a religious person, religious qualities I'm seeing in some movements today, which is interesting, uh, which is fine, mm-hmm. I guess, but then at least own it, you know, don't say your, you know, religion's a problem when you're basically embodying a religion <laughs> and then saying you're not part yeah, of Yeah. I don't think they're woke to that aspect of what they're doing, but with pre- so for- it's a religion that doesn't call itself it or it yeah. doesn't understand how belief even works. So, I mean, they're storytellers. Well, they're critics. They're not even storytellers. So they know how to break down stories, but they don't know how to build them. So yeah. they know how to be anti-religious, but they don't know that they're being religious in their anti-religion. Um, you know, they know how to be uh, anti-dominant and then they don't realize that they're becoming dominant. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's really, uh, they have, it's got some big blind sites in it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So with privilege, I would say there's certain contexts that certainly um, aspects of my identity would bring me privilege. Not at all denying that. But I would say there are certain contexts where it wouldn't. Again, being um, if I was interviewing for a job as a white, straight evangelical (laughs) um, at a humanities department at a 
secular university or even some Christian universities that I don't think my, that my, my identity um, would bring me privilege at Berkeley. If I'm saying applying for a job in English, mm. even if I had all the credentials, like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that would work for me if I'm, I mean, there's many other examples I can give, but I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to freshly and eagerly admit that there are certain contexts that, um, where my various identity layers um, might bring me pr- privilege, and, and I'm denying it at all. But but just to say, because you're a white straight male, therefore you have categorical privilege in America, I think is sociologically unimaginative and naive about not recognizing just the the, the vast diversity of different intersections of <laughs> society yeah. that um, come into play. Um, where you're not a prophet, you don't claim to be a prophet, but where's this going to end end up? I mean, it sounds like this way of thinking is not slowing down, but gaining steam. We're in an election mm. year. Um, yeah, I just, I do wonder. Um, I just, I think if Donald Trump gets reelected, there's going to be riots in the streets, and a lot of people are going to be killed. Which streets? <laughs> Like specific. I mean, yeah, it's not going to be yeah. the places that voted him. Okay. Ergo, it's yeah, not yeah. going to be the people that voted. It's going to be the people that voted against him that are going to be shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, the left will eat its own, um, which is unfortunate because we need a strong left. We need a strong progressive party that's willing to play around with new ideas. Mm-hmm. And we need them to respect, and this is the problem, we need a progressive party that respects conservatives um, and understands that they don't have anything to play around with if the conservatives don't actually form the bedrock of society and, and continue to make it productive and function. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to band together um, with those who want to play with the new and those who want to preserve the old and uh, reinstitute um, dialogue uh, between those groups, mm-hmm. um, because that's where the good ideas are going to come from, because then you have uh, people who are willing to experiment and then actually see if those experiments worked out or not. Right. Yeah. Um, so um, with regards to the trajectory of this stuff is there will be more and more bureaucratic installations, which is what I'm really concerned with, because this is going to be a huge sink. The bureaucracy behind the diversity industry, which is multi-billion-dollar-a-year industry, is a complete waste of resources. It denigrates um, the ability for one person to do their workflow. It denigrates the ability for people to work together in a group. It denigrates the way that the institution um, can function efficiently because it's introducing all of this politic into the inner workings of the institution. So it's going to be uh, going through municipal governments and federal governments. It's already going through all these different governments and these institutions. And you put that on top, like this huge multi-billion dollar a year industry that's doing nothing but integrating anxiety and difference Hmm. and a discord within the population, sapping resources, sapping productivity in the time of two things, uh, a virus that came from China and a government that's in China. Those two things, and then I guess global warming or like the the changing of the climate that we're going to have to figure out, like... We're just gonna have to figure out that. I don't. I don't know that much about it, but we have a huge economic downfall from COVID nineteen. We have a Chinese government that is authoritarian and that is quickly overtaking us in productivity and their ideals. I don't think we want 
We don't want them to win on the world stage. They are incredibly problematic, um, the Chinese government. And this stuff plays directly into their hands because it creates a lot of discord in us. So we need to be able to enter into conversations around disparity and conversations around different outcomes for different groups. That's absolutely efficient or necessary. But if we have to do it with a um, with the eyes on, well, how do we solve this stuff so that everybody's productive and everybody works together? And I think if you bring that into the conversation, mm -hmm. this equity, diversity, and quote-unquote anti-racism stuff falls short. It falls short on producing the outcome that's desirable. Even though it claims to have all of the history and the right side of history, it actually doesn't have the middle ground of actuality on its side. Who, who do you see, who do you like to follow who you feel like is actually speaking well into this area of, say, race, racial tensions, um, power, and uh, all this stuff? Like, are there certain thinkers out there that you that are kind of go-tos for you? Oh, shit. <laughs> um, the way that I is that I take an idea and then I find somebody off the beaten path that's thinking through this stuff. So that's, I, okay. I'm always looking for new speakers. Okay. Um, I, and if I were to say that there's somebody that I promote right now, I feel like I would be aligning myself with a group. Okay. I'm very I, IDW in the fact that I don't <laughs> want to have anything to do with the IDW. Like, I don't want to be uh, associated with that. Um, with regards to race, I find that's a really difficult conversation um, to have. And there are, like, yeah. Coleman Hughes is very good. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, totally. Glenn Lowry. Glenn Lowry and his conversations with John McWhorter on the blogging heads, that's absolutely the gold standard for uh, down-to-earth discourse. Um, and I'm probably saying that because I agree with them and they're very anti-woke in their uh, in their delivery and in their belief system. So um, I think that yeah. I can confidently say Glenn Lowry is like Adam reborn for our time. I was literally, go literally going to say Glenn Lowry, John McWhorter, Coleman... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have been yeah. devouring Lowry's. The, 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 he is um, devouring Lowry. Yeah, and it, he, I do have to be. I, I always want to push back against myself. Am I gravitating because yeah. I think I'm agreeing with it? But I, I don't. I, I'm, I'm genuinely in. People say no, you're not. But whatever. I, I'm. I am learning. So I'm looking for people that make sense. That are that are intellectually. They know what they're talking about. They're giving facts, evidence. They're considering things from all sides, and they just are really smart, right? Um, so I'm not coming in it with "here's where I stand." I'm going to find somebody who agrees with me. I, I'm just coming in it as a learner. And when I listen to Lowry, I'm like, "This guy, there is not a thoughtless word that comes out of his mouth." And even him and John McWhorter don't agree on stuff, and they're both brilliant. But on the big picture stuff, yeah. they very much line up. And Coleman is some kind of prodigy brilliant dude i mean he's just yeah. a college graduate i mean but he sounds like yeah. he's professor status but um and, and there's others in that oh, yeah. circle that i've been listening to all black men would for those who don't know who these guys are um man um i was gonna ask you who you're gonna vote for but i'll i'll save uh i won't put you on the spot. well i mean who do i worry about most yeah, um that's... trump or biden i think that trump has got some pretty serious problems there's some pretty serious problems that he's introducing to our country and some pretty um some pretty negative effects but those um aren't yeah. the whole story he's doing a lot of good things with our economy and he's actually he's actually 
pretty good at this whole worldwide thing. I mean, with that Middle East Accord thing and the way that he's kind of turned around North Korea, he's actually got, and he's putting China in his place, he's actually doing some good things for our country. Um, However, the backlash to him is worrying because people are so crazy against him and so up in arms about him that I just want that to end. But at the same time, they're just destroying themselves by just melting down mentally and undermining the the Democrats are just undermining themselves. So what do we have? We have we have Joe Biden, who I, I don't see him being healthy enough to lead. So he's going to die or resign. And then we have Kamala. Um, and I don't trust her. I, I don't yeah. trust her. But I, I need to do more research in that. So I, I think that the effect that Trump's having um, with regards to possibly Internet censorship and the advancement of this diversity stuff mm-hmm. through the world will um, I think that the the problems that I see with regards to diversity will will become will come to the head much quicker and really expose itself for what it is under a Trump regime because Trump is really agitating it. So it will really it'll kind of you know put us through a fever mm-hmm. and like really exacerbate the symptoms and then hopefully we'll be able to see that these ideas are if if biden gets elected i think we're going to see a huge intersectional push mm-hmm. and it's we're going to go down the path of having that stuff really deeply embedded in our culture and i think that that stuff is really really bad really bad for us so you know i want to ask you a question and i'm, I'm going to let you how much more time do you have do you have a couple just a couple minutes i i'm taking yeah, longer than i okay that's good i i you're not, you know, evangelical. You're not a, a Christian in, in, you know, practice or name or whatever. Um, us evangelicals, and I use that loosely. Most evangelicals, okay. we talked offline, uh, I would not um, line up with, especially as they merge kind of right-wing politics with their faith. And I just am very mm. really adamantly against that and have been outspoken against that. So I use the term very loosely, but for you, if you were looking on, you looking on as a, somebody outside the church, you would probably consider me probably a strange evangelical, maybe um, in some ways, but what, um, as an outsider, how do you see, let's just say Biden gets elected, he, you know, he lives six months or a year or whatever. I mean, I think Kamala would, would be, <laughs> the next president pretty soon. Here's my prediction. I'm going to go on the air predicting this. Um, I think if Biden gets elected within a year, it will be the Democrats that will say, I don't think he's mentally fit. Mm, Yeah. I think we need to get, I I think, yeah, he needs like right now it's the Republicans pointing that out. And the Democrats are like, no, he's fine. What are you talking? What are you talking about? Like, no, he's cognitively awesome. Like, I don't, what, what that, how, how dehumanizing for you to pick on somebody that that's going to switch if he gets elected because they, he is a placeholder. He's, he called yeah. himself that They're, they want Kamala in. And I, mm. from the little I've seen, she does seem not trustworthy and pretty far left when it suits her. Um, where do you think this will leave evangelicals? We are already in some circles viewed as just synonymous with mm. alt right if you hold to a so-called biblical Christian view of marriage, like I do, um, one man and one woman, um, yeah. what's going to happen to us um, if politics leadership does seem to swing a bit farther left? As, again, as an as one thing for evangelicals to say, we're going to be martyred, whatever. Like, but do you see um, evangelicals oh, okay. being targeted, nonprofits being taken away, Christian schools being forced to? 
you know, have a certain ideology or they lose their nonprofit status. I don't know. Have you, have you even yeah. given us any yeah. thought? Um, well, um, you're not talking about the faith. You're talking about the group then yes. as a, as a block, as a, as a, as an identity or sector right. of the, uh, population. That's a really interesting thing. I think that, um, your interests as a community will align uh, more than ever with, uh, I guess, classical liberal interests and that you – your group will be motivated to bring back a understanding of secularism where – I have my beliefs, you have your beliefs, and we leave them out of certain domains. Those beliefs do not belong in, I guess, uh, government or in uh, – well, I guess you guys have already segregated yourselves in the school system, but even in business relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing about this anti – racist dogma is that it is a belief system that doesn't call itself as such and it's implementing itself non-secularly into you know it's forcing the secular domain to collapse under it and belief system so i think that there will be incentives for evangelicals or any sort of conservative faith to band together across the different faiths and say okay we need to go back to the foundation america american principles why we created this country is so we don't kill each other over these beliefs where i respect your belief and you respect my belief and there's a line in the sand for that so I think that that will provide incentives for uh, evangelicals to actually um, look outside of themselves and, and build. I don't know if you guys have or not, but like to really build alliances with other faiths, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It is. I mean, evangelical is such a slippery term and it's so broad and there's it's interesting. Yeah. I'm I'm seeing within evangelical circles, you know, you mentioned Beverly D'Angelo several times and that third wave anti-racism a lot of yes. somewhat moderate to even conservative evangelicals have embraced it hook line and sinker um yeah. i remember i, I infectious. Um, i'm the well the umc the united methodist church isn't particularly conservative but they they have hired beverly d'angelo to come in and do diversity training Robin. within the denomination that's not surprising but i'm seeing a a, a, a a lot of people kind of read d'angelo's book and say this is amazing you know and i'm like this is one yep. of the worst books I've read in the last 10 years, regardless of the conclusion, <laughs> maybe she's right. I'm just saying just from an academic level, like it's just, yeah. I don't know where the editor was on this one. <laughs> like it's, mm. I, I remember John mm. McGorder saying like, I knew I wouldn't agree with the book. I didn't know it was so bad. Like that, that's how <laughs> I read it. So I'm like, how does somebody read this? And like, there's a lot of good books that address racism out there. This is just not one of the i don't know and and there's certain things in it that i resonate mm. with and and i thought was helpful but i don't know that's a little troubling for me so i um yeah it, mm. i just have a huge question mark what if there is a if if where we're going as a society keeps going in this direction the kind of evergreening of america if, if we can put a bow yeah. on it um i, I just no, wonder if churches churches are gonna go through evergreens yeah Mm. This stuff is uh, evergreen is a really interesting situation because it shows the effect of these ideas within small communities. And the people who reached out to me after I was telling it were like they're in the knitting community. They're in the atheist community. There's a, they're in all these other communities. The interesting thing about Christianity is that it's built out of believers or people who are prone to uh, want to install in their daily lives a meta narrative mm -hmm. that that kind of transcends the activity and places it into a bigger 
context. And anti-racism gives you 400 years of oppression, you know, and then a glorious utopia at the end, which I think is a, a kind of a very materialist, uh, very lowly uh, repurposing of certain themes of the Christian story writ large. It's really repurposed. So it really can fit itself and install itself into churches um, for different vectors. And the thing is, is that the, the values that are central to it aren't values that outlast it. The values that are central to anti-racism, which is uh, selfishness and greed and identity and narcissism, um, all those values, they aren't stated, but that's how, that's the, the emotions that it brings up. It brings a lot of greed, a lot of selfishness, and then it shows you how to say, well, to act in self-interest for somebody else. So the values that it brings to the surface are very antisocial and unjust. And so it really shakes out in these small containers, be it a church or any other group, it'll sh uh, shake it out. There will be a crisis of faith and then the, the church is going to have to reformulate itself around these around these ideas. But the people who believe in them won't understand what they're believing in until it comes to fruition. So you're going to see a lot of uh, just struggle sessions and, and destruction of, of smaller groups until people catch on and wake up to it. Benjamin, I'm taking you over. Um, I could I could talk to you for hours. And again, I would highly recommend um, whether you resonated with much, all, or very little of what Benjamin has said. I highly recommend uh, his YouTube channel and podcast. You have a wide range of super super interesting guests on your show, and you you have an amazing ability to ask great questions. So, um, yeah. Uh, well, so, thanks for having me on, Preston. Yeah. It's yeah, I'm I'm glad you you really engaged me in in a new light. So I hope <laughs> I said something. <laughs> I've got to know Paul Vanderclay. That's our mutual friend. I know you've had him. All right on, on, on yeah. Show. Paul's so we, great. Yeah, he's uh, we've had each other on several times, and we resonate very much with uh, many things so um, anyway thanks for being Always on man appreciate you class act absolutely thanks for having me take care